This is Louisiana Considered on WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge. I'm Diane Mack. Just ahead on today's show, we talk with Rebecca Holland, former reporter with The Advocate, about a growing mental health treatment backlog in New Orleans. Also, we catch up with composer Giovanni Santos, who brings Brazilian connections to contemporary ballet. But first... From extreme heat to periods of drought, climate change is impacting farmers. In response, some producers are leaning on more regenerative practices to preserve land rather than depleting it. The Gulf States Newsroom's Danny McArthur reports on one woman's quest to reclaim an old peanut farm and create an indigenous food forest in Alabama. So down in here is one of the springs. Um, Both the ponds are spring-fed. Angie Como is taking me to a spring on her farm in Florala, Alabama. The ground gets muddier the closer you get to it. (laughs) (laughs) Como is showing me around Hummingbird Springs Farm. She and a group of volunteers planted thousands of trees and hundreds of plant species. It's winter, so at first glance, it just looks like overgrown grass and bushes. But what we're actually looking at is the early stages of an indigenous food forest. The whole farm is like a food forest. To understand what that is, let's talk about corn, beans, and squash. They're known as the three sisters. So the corn is tall and it gives a trellis for the beans to climb up. The beans will put nitrogen into the soil and that will help both the corn and the squash grow. The story of the three sisters is a smaller version of what happens in a food forest. The plants here grow stronger together. The squash leaves are very prickly, and they are big, and they cover a lot of the ground. So it's actually like giving moisture control to the soil, and it also gives pest control because bugs don't necessarily like to walk on prickly little leaves. Como says she's Muscogee, Cherokee, and Choctaw. She was born in New Orleans and raised in southeast Louisiana, but came to Alabama to farm her ancestral lands. This farm was completely clear-cut when Como first got here in 2020. For almost a century, it had been a peanut farm. That left the soil depleted. But Como saw it as an opportunity to establish a healthy ecosystem. To do that, she's using traditional ecological knowledge. It's knowledge that's been passed down by generations of indigenous people based on their direct experience with the environment. Yate, yate yapini, from where I'm at, that's a good morning in Navajo. Nicholas Rajan is a natural resources specialist with the Intertribal Agriculture Council, a nonprofit that works to elevate and promote indigenous agriculture. Traditional knowledge changes depending on where you are. What works in Alabama won't necessarily work up in New York or California. That's why it's important for Como to plant what naturally grows in Alabama. And planting native species is especially important in the face of climate change which has led to Gulf South farmers experiencing more extreme heat, droughts, and colder winters than before. The importance there is that you actually build up a a resiliency when you're using these native species, because even if they're impacted from these like more and more extreme weather shifts, they're still adapted for that region and for that climate. (laughs) There's all the goats. Hi girls. Hello girls, what are y'all doing? Angie Como has seen this firsthand. She and a group of volunteers planted 1,400 native trees here. Last winter, they went back to check on them after extreme weather, and she was surprised that they only lost 30. 
And she's found another sign that what she's doing is restoring the ecosystem here. So this is one right here. She points to a hole in the ground. The way you can tell it's a burrow or not, a gopher tortoise burrow, is the bottom is flat and the top is more like a half moon or a semicircle. Gopher tortoises are a keystone species here. That means they have a larger impact on their ecosystem than others. They kick dirt out, so when they're digging it, the dirt is like, it forms like a, they call it an apron. So there'll be like a- In two years, she's gone from three of these burrows to 30. We can walk over to that little corner where I was talking about. <laughs> Como takes me to her favorite spot on the farm. It's a pond that she uses as a water source. I do hear them. At sunset, it's so loud, you can't even hear yourself think. Like, I'm surprised they're- when she stands here, she feels peace. All you can see and hear is the farm. Como isn't farming here to make money. She says her ultimate goal is to be able to provide traditional foods to her community and create a land trust so that the land she's healing is available for future generations. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Danny MacArthur. The Gulf States Newsroom is a partnership among public radio stations in Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Diane Mack. According to the Department of Health, the average person found incompetent to stand trial in Louisiana remains in jail for an average of 6.8 months before being admitted for treatment. This, of course, is all before they are even found guilty of committing a crime. And while overcrowding in Louisiana's only mental health facility has long been a problem, it's grown worse in recent years. Rebecca Holland is a former reporter for The Advocate who covered this story, and she joins us now for more. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the numbers. Roughly how many people are there waiting in parish prisons for a space at the mental health facility? How has this number grown over the years, and what are the main reasons for this increase? Sure. So as of January 11th, there were 185 people waiting in parish prisons for space at the Eastern Louisiana Mental Health System in Jackson. That number is slightly down. It was 194 last October, but um, from 2020 to 2022, the number of people ruled incompetent doubled, and there are a couple of different factors for that. So COVID is definitely a part of it. Um, doctors' ability to see patients was limited during that time, and the courts were temporarily closed. But this has been an issue for years, and the main reason is that there just aren't enough facilities. There are two state-run psychiatric hospitals in Louisiana. Um, others were closed in 2009 and 2012, and there just aren't a lot of mental health treatment options around the state for people to access before they would maybe get to the point of being arrested or needing more intense treatment. 
And roughly how many people are currently housed at Eastern Louisiana Mental Health System, or ELMHS? How is that facility dealing with overcrowding? Yeah, there are currently more than 600 people at that facility, um, and you know, that's overcrowded as it is. So basically people just have to wait for bed space to open up. Uh, the Department of Health has tried to partner with private contractors. Harmony Health was the main one to move patients from Eastern Louisiana Mental Health System into another facility and create more space, but they've run into some issues. They um, tried to open one facility in Baton Rouge, but residents protested that. So then they tried moving it to a former nursing home in Clinton, Louisiana, but residents didn't really want that there either. And the East Feliciana Parish um, denied the building permit that would have allowed them to move that nursing home or bring it up to code as a mental health facility. So now that's uh, tied up in court and the Department of Health is planning to renovate a facility that's on the same property as the current one. How does what's happening now violate a 2016 federal lawsuit? So in 2016, the Louisiana Department of Health settled a federal lawsuit that agreed to provide behavioral health assessments within five days and admit patients into treatment within 15 days. But that is just not possible without the bed space. So they're in violation of it. And you also reported that some of these individuals are actually only arrested for minor crimes. What percentage of inmates fall under this category? Are some of them waiting in jails longer than they would even be in prison if found guilty? Yeah, so about 20% of the people on the wait list in East Baton Rouge um, were arrested on minor charges like simple burglary, theft, or drug possession. Uh, in Louisiana, your time spent in prison does count towards your eventual prison sentence if you are found guilty, but there is no law that says a person cannot be held pretrial for longer than their maximum sentence. So there are potentially people on this list who could be held for longer than what their sentence would be. However, this um, gets a little complicated because a lot of people on this list have prior warrants or have violated their parole or there may be other factors that would increase their sentence, um, but it is possible. We are speaking with Rebecca Holland, former reporter for The Advocate, about the mental health treatment backlog that's clogging Louisiana jails and courts. Rebecca, I want to back up and learn a bit more about how the system works in the first place. If someone is found incompetent to stand trial, what happens to them, and how do the following proceedings delay their case? Yeah, so even before they're found incompetent, there can be delays. So a defendant's attorney can come to the court and say, you know, my client doesn't understand the proceedings. They're not competent to help with their defense. And in that case, the judge appoints a sanity commission. And that whole process can take about three months right there. Then they wait for the bed space to open up. So that can take weeks or, you know, up to 6.8 months. Um, from there, they receive mental health treatment. And that all just really depends on the patient. So the court checks in every six months. But of course, people can be restored before that, or sometimes it can take years. Uh, most people are eventually restored to competency and do eventually stand trial. But along the way, um, sometimes people are transferred to different jails or different mental health facilities, and those places are supposed to keep records. But um, public defenders I spoke with said that doesn't always happen. And so sometimes paperwork issues mean that defendants aren't brought to their court dates, which of course can further delay their hearings. And while they're waiting for space at ELMHS, they remain in parish jails. And as you reported, they're often placed in single cells. How might that be counterintuitive to the mental health treatment that they actually need? 
Yes. So often patients with mental health issues are particularly vulnerable to abuse. So they are separated from other inmates, but being isolated can be bad for anyone's mental health. And advocates that I spoke with stress that extended time in jail can really degrade a person's mental health even further. Now, there are some mental health services provided in jails, but as you reported, it's not at the same level as ELMHS. What are the main differences between the services in jail and at the facility? So jails are just not really set up to provide mental health treatment. They don't have those resources and it's not really their job. Um, If they do provide services, it's generally basic and not tailored to the individual. And one major difference is that in the jail setting, you have to consent to treatment. Um, Doctors in jails cannot force patients to accept treatment or accept medication, which is something that they can do in the mental health treatment facility. And then treatment at Jackson or in the mental health facility also includes classes about your legal rights. Well, what happens next? Is there anything being done to address this backlog, the overcrowding and the blatant violation of the 2016 lawsuit? Yeah, as of December, the Department of Health was still planning to renovate a building at its Villa Feliciana Mental Medical Complex, and that was supposed to be completed by May 2024. Um, I have not heard updates on that yet, so I'm not sure where that stands. And then the Harmony facility in Clinton is still tied up in court, but depending how that is resolved, that could also house some patients eventually. Rebecca Holland, former reporter for The Advocate. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Diane Mack. Brazilian song and dance come alive in an original program of two works as the Marini Opera Ballet presents the premiere of Agua Mole Pedra Dura, Brazilian Connections in Contemporary Ballet. The program's score of diverse rhythms and styles is composed by guitarist and multi-instrumentalist Giovanni Santos. He joins us now. Welcome to Louisiana Considered. Thank you for having me. Giovanni, the title of this original work has a rhythm of its own as it just rolls off the tongue, and I hope I did it justice in the introduction. Tell me, what does the title mean, what does it translate to, and how did you come to choose it? Uh, It was like a collaboration between me, the choreographers, and the artistic director of the Marion Opera House, and it's a popular saying that you know revolves around uh, resilience, perseverance. You know, sometimes it could be considered insistence because uh, if you translate it, like literally, it's uh, soft water, hard rock. The more you insist, the the rock disintegrate. You know, so to speak, if you are to like, like I said, translate it literally. So that's more or less, you know, and they're, they're trying to relate the, the Brazilian popular saying to the resilience of the Marin Opera House Ballet Company. What attracted you to the project? 
I was approached by the 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 Marian Opera House uh, artistic director, and I've been working with them for the past uh, six years on small projects led by myself, just like maybe music performances by my group or like uh, uh, Afro-Brazilian cultural showcases, which was something that we did there uh, twice. But the composition is just like a compilation of all the things I've done in my in my life as a as an artist as a musician which blends uh classical music jazz brazilian music and some contemporary ideas of like singer songwriter as well and i just like blend it all in in this hour-long composition in two acts you know like one act has more like tunes and songs put in an order like chronological order with some transitions between the songs, you know, so I have, you know, uh, the songs pre-composed, some of them and some of them are composed for this specific uh, uh, show with the ballet, but they're all fit together, you know, back to back, switching from styles from the early 1900s up to the 80s in terms of like Brazilian music and just like blending what I know of jazz music and jazz improvisation and, and modern harmonies and, and rhythms and just like having that be a little bit of like the thematic of the whole first act. And the second act is more contemporary and follows an idea that I had a few years ago of writing a suite that basically described the life cycle of a butterfly. Now, what is the name of the ensemble. Tell us more about the players and how you connect with them. All the musicians that are playing on this show, they are musicians that I have worked with along the years. I moved to the to the United States in 2015, uh, focused on playing the music of my country, blending it with the influences I had in the city. I started playing music that blended jazz with Brazilian music and focusing more on the Brazilian music repertoire and my own compositions. So the musicians I have in the ensemble are musicians that have been playing with me from 2015 to now. And what is the name of the ensemble? I was asked to have, you know, like a, a, a name that connected to, to the entire work. And the name I came up with is uh, Maria Fumasa, you know, like or orchestra, Maria Fumasa, Maria Fumasa Orchestra. And the reason why I chose that, the Maria Fumasa, you know, just like a little uh, parenthesis here, is the way we in Brazil called the steam train. So back in the day, the steam trains, they would come through and just, just like blast their horns and just like expel all that smoke up. And... In Portuguese, smoke and fumaça are the same thing. Fumaça is the is the translated word for for smoke. So Maria, you know, is like is is a is a very common name. Is a Maria, if you say that in English. So they called this train, you know, which is just like the the motor part of it, Maria Fumaça. You know, so I called it Maria Fumaça because I have a lot of quotes of the trains that actually surround New Orleans, everywhere you are, you know, like with the exception of some parts of uptown, you can hear the train honking and you will hear that in the show, you know, because I have the train included and imprinted and encrusted in the whole piece. My idea was just like the belt 
of train tracks that surround New Orleans. So everywhere you are, you hear the train. So you have to hear the train in my music, too. Yeah. Now, there are two distinct pieces on this program. Let's take them one by one. Who are the choreographers that you worked with? And what are the themes that are being explored in each work? Yeah, I'm working with uh, Jarina Carvalho and Diogo de Lima. They're both from Brazil, and they have been living in New Orleans for a long time, but I've never met them. It was really interesting to meet them for the first time. And they gave me a lot of freedom to write the pieces. One of them is conceptualizes, you know, like as if you were listening to a CD that has transitions between the tunes. And the other one is more contemporary that like is kind of freeform the way it's written, but it follows a plot line of like, uh, you know, birth, growth and, and evolution and, and, and death, so to speak. And I do believe the way they, they're working on it is, is uh, connecting to, to the idea of the title of the entire show, which is Agua Mole Pedra Dura. Jarina is working with the fluidity of water and a little bit of the resilience and the transition of characters from the rural areas of Brazil to the city and back to the rural areas in terms of like connecting to memory and how music and movement help these characters move along the, the storyline that she's putting together. And Diogo, he's, he's doing a little bit more of a free form and just like feeling the music as it goes, creating counterpoints with movement where you have, you know, uh, if you think about music as you, you have theme number one and theme number two, creating conversations along the music, Diogo is doing these things with the dancers. He has solos for, for specific duos or trios or even like one person doing a solo. And then you have the counterpoints going up and he kind of develops that throughout the whole piece. What will be the experience for audiences as they connect with the music and the dancers? I think folks are going to be very impressed with the work that we're putting together. I think this is the first time they have a full Brazilian creative team putting together a show like this at the Marin Opera House. I think folks are going to be very impressed with what we have in, in, in store for them. Composer, band leader, and guitarist. Giovanni Santos, it's been fun talking with you. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate you. The Marini Opera Ballet presents Agua Mole Pedra Dura, Brazilian Connections in Contemporary Ballet. Performances run over two weekends, February 23rd through 25th and March 1st through 3rd. More info is online at marinioperahouse.org. In the interest of full disclosure, I am a member of the Marini Opera Foundation Board. From WWNL in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Diane Mack. Thanks to our guest, Rebecca Holland, former reporter for The Advocate, composer, bandleader, and guitarist Giovanni Santos, and from the Gulf States newsroom, Danny McArthur. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber. 
and our assistant producer is Aubrey Procell. Our engineer is Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from Louisiana Farm Bureau Federation. 